and welcome to this episode of How to Win Friends and Influenza, a podcast all about careers and life in medicine and associated healthcare specialties. My name is Lily and I'm your host. So astute listeners, you might have noticed a little bit of a conspiracy going on here. In the last couple of episodes, we've had a few Dr. Phillips. We had one talking about skincare and general practice. We uh, had one talking about psychiatry. And even some of our music is composed by Philip. But trends are made to be broken. So in this episode, we do not have another Phil or Philip, but we actually have a clinical psychologist, Juliet. And uh, by the way, Not Another Phil sounds like a movie title, so I should probably write that one down. But we're not here to talk about movies, we're here to talk about medicine and health. So in our previous episode, we talked to a psychiatrist. And in this episode, we're going to talk to a psychologist. Both professions work in the field of mental health, but they are two different professions. So what is the difference? Well, we're going to find out today with Juliet. So welcome, Juliet, and thanks for being on the show. Oh, pleasure, Lily. Excellent. So let's just start off with the difficult questions. What is a clinical psychologist? Okay. A clinical psychologist is a clinician or a therapist who practices in the area of mental health or working with um, patients or clients with mental health problems or mental illness as well. So typically the presentations that most clinical psychologists will work with are people with anxiety disorders, depression. Um, some will deal with people with psychosis using psychological treatments to help them manage their hallucinations and delusional beliefs. Um, there are also psychologists who work um, exclusively with people with eating disorders, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, things like that. Um, and other people specialise in other services like drug and alcohol services, people with addiction. So it's quite a broad range. Um, Although some psychologists will work with children, others work will, uh, will work with adults, others still will work in a more psychogeriatric um, um, age group. Um, and really the um, problem issues can vary from really very young children, um, things like bedwetting, um, mutism, not being able to speak, for example, in kids. They can speak, but they choose not to. Um, all the way through to um, even assessing um, older people with dementia. So it's a very, very broad area. Um, my background personally, though, is in the treatment of um, typically adults with anxiety disorders and depression. Right, right. So it sounds like there is a huge range of patients that you could consult with, lots of different disorders. And I noticed that um, in your case, you're a clinical psychologist. Mm. So you've got that um, added word of clinical, which I guess refers to the patient interaction part. Um, so just briefly, could you touch on some of the other types of psychology that are out there, research or otherwise? Uh, yes. When I was in um, my undergraduate degree, I did an undergraduate degree in um, science, um, majoring in psychology, and all my subjects were essentially psychology, especially in second and third year. But uh, most of, I remember in um, the first year of university in the 101 psychology course, it was a massive course, about a thousand students. And um, the lecturer said, hands up, who wants to find out more about themselves and, you know, learn how to treat and diagnose yourself and your family? And pretty much everybody put up their hand. And he said, well, you will not be learning that in this course. <laughs> in fact, most of the um, three to four years of an undergraduate psychology degree was very, um, very much focused around perception, um, long-term memory, uh, the way the mind is working, how it perceives things. There was an enormous component of statistics. 
um, and really one subject on abnormal psychology, which is what people then pursue when they take on a master's degree or a doctorate degree to end up becoming a clinical psychologist. So it's a very broad range. Um, there's uh, organisational psychology, which is often uh, concerning um, interactions in the workplace, things like management, management styles. Do you mm. want a really friendly boss or do you want someone who's very task-oriented? Um, there are psychologists who work with uh, road signs, for example. Um, how do you know at what point a motorist needs to stop at a stop sign? Where, how large does the sign be? need to be at what point and what speed does the motorists need to be driving. So psychologists are often involved in those issues as well. Very, very broad area. Yeah, so it's more than just patients. I think there are even psychologists who work in marketing and human resources. Yes, I'm sure that's the case. Although, yes. (laughs) Excellent. Okay, in this case we're we're talking about clinical psychology, so the sort of um, complement to psychiatrists working with patients. So how do you get patients? Do they come through referral or do they just check themselves into you? How does that work? Uh, that's a good question. It depends on the, t- um, the area that you're working in. So in the past when I used to work in a public uh, hospital, patients would be referred either by themselves, they could call up, um, for example, the anxiety clinic at Cumberland Hospital um, and just call up themselves. Sometimes they would be referred by a community health centre saying we've got a patient who's got obsessive compulsive disorder, can you take them on? Um, Sometimes the GP would refer to a public um, service, but mostly it would be people just calling up themselves and you can make an appointment, you don't need a referral for um, a sort of public service. However, in private practice, which is where I work um, mostly, um, referrals um, primarily are coming through GPs, mostly because um, since 2006 um, patients can get a Medicare rebate. So prior to 2006 it was 100% out of pocket for psychology but now um, they can get a, a rebate of I think $124.50 to be specific. <laughs> um, psychologists charge anywhere between bulk billing so there's no out of pocket um, through to over $200 um, for an hour. Um, that's really up to the discretion of um, the psychologist or their practice. Um, but most of the time referrals will come through GPs because they need to um, provide the Medicare Uh, mental health care plan for the patient to get the referral. Um, However, those that are a little bit more paranoid or just can't be bothered to go through that process, they don't want any Medicare um, connection with their, um, you know, personal treatment. Um, Okay, so that was just a knock on the door from a colleague. So we resumed recording. Um, So actually, that that is a a good interruption to a different topic, which is that um, you're in the hospital at the moment, so there is a bit of interaction with um, people from different fields. Yes. So psychiatrists, psychologists. um, Who else do you work with? Um, Probably I would... The majority of the um, multidisciplinary relationships I would have probably would be with psychiatrists or um, their registrars. Um, Sometimes you may have a nurse, a mental health nurse, um, who may be involved, even less um, commonly for me personally, but it depends on the area. So if you're working in um, psychogeriatrics, uh, where people are needing to go into nursing homes, um, you may be working with occupational therapists and um, social workers as well. So they tend to be the people involved in multidisciplinary teams, but mostly I'd be working with psychiatrists. So I'm going to take a guess that when you go to parties, psychiatrists and psychologists both have that stereotype of you can read someone's mind, but obviously psychiatrists and psychologists are are two different fields. Mm. So what is the difference? Is it in the types of treatments you offer? Um, Well, I suppose psychiatrists um, start their training... um, as medical doctors um, and then they go and specialise in psychiatry and predominantly it is the sort of medication management of Mm -hmm. um, mental illnesses. However, um, psychiatrists, um, particularly historically, um, 
for example, since the days of Freud, also more commonly used in psychologists, more psychoanalytic, psychodynamic approaches, things like not necessarily lying on the couch, but mm. um, a much more unstructured, um, more delving into, not always, but more un, you know, trauma-based sorts of um, explanations that may not necessarily be consciously available to the patient, looking a lot more into childhood factors and processing those sorts of issues than um, most clinical psychologists, although some may do some of that as well. Um, however, most clinical psychologists are trained in cognitive behaviour therapy, which is abbreviated to CBT, which is um, a treatment that's really focused on the here and now, present sorts of issues. Um, they do acknowledge past trauma and childhood issues um, as factors that may contribute to the problem today, but they tend not to do much work in necessarily going back to address those factors unless indicated. Um, so cognitive behaviour therapy, really in a nutshell, is based on the idea that it's our thoughts or beliefs or interpretations of the events that are going on around us, um, not the event itself that leads to our emotional responses. So we often go through life thinking, this happened and that made me feel angry or happy or sad or frightened. The event made me feel that way. But cognitive therapy is really based on the idea it's really our perceptions of that event that are actually influencing how we feel about it. So oftentimes when people are feeling, um, you know, very intense negative emotional states that are lasting too long and interfering in their life, chances are their thought patterns associated with whatever it is that they're distressed about are in some ways, it's never nice to say this, but this tends to be how even patients um, acknowledge it, their thought patterns tend to be somewhat um, exaggerated or distorted, irrational, unrealistic, or at best unhelpful. So um, often clinical psychologists will be involved in helping the person identify any sorts of maladaptive or um, unrealistic thinking styles and also looking at the behaviours that they're engaging in that may be maintaining these unhelpful beliefs. Um, so often it's the case of some form of avoidance behaviour that will um, maintain the problem. So we're looking at helping people confront their fears or take on new challenges typically through not avoiding. That's often in the area of anxiety and depression. Different specialties will have their own um, unique um, take on cognitive behaviour therapy, although it is also used for most of the disorders across the board. Right, and there are so many interesting points there, so I hope I cover them all and I don't forget. So firstly, just to dispel some myths, so there's not always a couch. Just for the record, we're both sitting in chairs, rather distinguished, there is no couch here. <laughs> Secondly, psychology is not all about following Freud, so Freud is the whole childhood analysis stuff, but um, a lot of what um, is done now is CBT and other things, so they're just two different options. And um, CBT itself, I guess, if anyone's a fan of The Simpsons, um, that's a bit like helping Marge Simpson get over her fear of flying, you know. Um, that can be working through specific phobias, working through social anxiety disorder, that's right. working through obsessive compulsive disorder, um, lots of things like that. What I find really interesting about um, CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, is it's directed to patients who are very maladaptive, are having trouble um, carrying out their function in life. But it's also applicable to everyone because everyone has those internal scripts and, and um, those unhelpful thought patterns. But I guess the difference between a patient and a non-patient is um, it's just a lot more impairment for the patient. Yeah, that would be a reasonable definition. Um, yeah. I think most of us at different times of our lives will go through some sort of stressor. Um, and often we just have, as human beings, a natural tendency to interpret ambiguous situations, often on the negative. So worrying that if there's uncertainty, did I lock my car? Oh, maybe it's going to get stolen. Mm -hmm. Chances are it 
it won't, um, depending on the area, of course, you're living in. My, just as a side note, my car's having some um, electrical wiring issues and it doesn't lock with the little jigger, the, the locking. <laughs> um, and my partner asked me, do you want me to take it to the mechanics? I'll be away for two weeks, so um, we'll have to get a hire car for two weeks. Um, or do you want to lock it manually? Um, and I thought, oh, saving, you know, I don't know, one or $2,000 for a hire yeah. car to lock yeah. it manually. You know, I can't even be bothered to lock it manually. I'm not even going to lock it. And so <laughs> for the last two weeks, I've not locked my car anywhere. And the car, which has also contained shopping and presents and mm. things like that for Christmas, has, oh, it's Murphy's Law, it's going to be jinx now. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't um, tell us your number plate or anything. <laughs> but no, it's always been there nice and safe when I return. Because oh, yeah. it's actually not that likely. However, when there's ambiguity, and there's some often the case where uh, if it's important to us, mm. we will worry, our thoughts will become, not necessarily based on reality, but cognitive behaviour therapy can help people um, just become more realistic in their thinking. Look at what, what's the likelihood? Who would need to know? Who's going around checking handles of every random car? It doesn't happen very often, <laughs> certainly in most parts of Sydney. Yeah. Although I am curious, if your car were to get stolen, nothing related to this podcast or the fact mm. that you've told me, sure. but <laughs> suppose your car was to get stolen, how would you feel then? Would you feel, oh no, I should have locked it? Or would you say, well, that's life, I took the risk and it didn't pay off? Um, yeah, I'd probably go with the second um, because most of the time I didn't lock it and it, it didn't happen. Mm. Um, so bad things can happen and I would al always be saying that to um, people, So particularly, for example, those either with a specific phobia, let's say of, um, fear of dogs biting them or someone even with post-traumatic stress disorder who's mm. been assaulted, who's worrying about being assaulted again. Um, their perceptions of danger are extremely elevated. So if you ask them how much do you believe if you go out and do nothing to protect yourself, the bad thing will happen, mm. they'll say... Um, um, you know, 80, 90, you know, I'm terrified. And you can see that if you take physiological measures, their heart will be racing, their um, skin will be, you know, galvanic skin response will be elevated and things like that. Um, so their perceptions of danger are very, very inflated. If the bad thing did happen, mm. um, it would be a case of really bad luck. So, for example, if someone in this day and age with um, bombs and terrorism and things like that um, was worried, if I go to a public shopping centre, I'm terrified I'm going to be blown up. It's extremely unlikely that you will be in that right location at that specific mm. time. The risk of that happening, if you get it out on a calculator, looking at the number of places and the number of times it's happened at that time of day, would be so far removed from 1%. It would be 0.00000%. It's still a chance, but you'd be much better off, you know, um, there's much higher risk of winning the lottery mm. than that <laughs> negative event happening. And you'd probably rather win the lottery. <laughs> yeah. right. it's, so it's like that idea that shark attacks aren't very common at beaches, but when there is a shark attack, it just gets um, publicised everywhere and people latch onto it and they're yeah. like, that one time there was a shark attack and it makes you think that um, you know, things are a lot more dangerous than they are. Like people yeah. talk about um, plane accidents, yeah, exactly. but you know, driving a car is much more dangerous statistically. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just terribly boring to say, you know, how many thousands of planes around the world arrive safely today? We're getting very, mm. very biased information. And, of course, that's going to affect our um, thoughts. And mm. if it's something that we care about, like living or dying or not wanting to die, um, we'll latch onto that information and, and sort of ignore and filter out a more balanced side of the story. Yeah. And so one of the big principles of CBT is um, repeated graded exposure. So if someone's really anxious about a situation that they get put in a situation like that and they stay in it till their stress sort of um, diminishes, has it ever happened that um, someone's been put in that situation and then the terrible thing happens? And if that's the case, you know, does that impede them and are they better off not having done the treatment? Um, in my 20 years of seeing patients, that has never happened. It has happened where you put someone in a situation and they panic and they mm. get very distressed and they may have a panic attack or cry. Yeah. Um, but I've never had someone 
who feared, um, I don't know, what could go, you know, a lift, for example. Mm, um, would break down or something? If the lift broke down, that wouldn't be a catastrophe because actually okay. it's, you know, who cares if the lift breaks sure. down? You'll get you'll get rescued. But if the thought was the lift will break down and we will plummet to our death, mm. firstly, when I've done okay. lift exposure, the, unfortunately the lift has never broken down, which yeah. deprives them of an opportunity <laughs> to realise that it's actually not that bad if right. the worst thing happened. But, for example, the cables don't break and they've never broken. Right. Um, so I've never treated someone... Um, where the bad thing actually has happened. It's, it's so unlikely. And if it was likely, I wouldn't do it. If there was some sort mm. of danger, I wouldn't put them in a dangerous situation. So CBT is not face... It's not about face helping a patient face their fears of things that are realistically dangerous. It's mm. an excessive or irrational fear of something right. that is actually very low risk or very unlikely to happen. Right. And I, I guess theoretically, even if a bit of that bad thing happened, they would just realise, oh, I'm still alive, it's still kind of okay. And You can still yeah. learn from it. So, okay. for example, often a question is asked of me of medical students, if you did do, um, say, graded exposure for someone with mm. a dog phobia mm. and they were terrified that the dog would bite them mm. and then the dog did bite them, what would you do then? Well, then I'd probably start doing some cognitive work with them and say, well, okay, let's look at the impact of your fear. How is it impacting on your life? You can't go to friends' places, you're too afraid to go in the street, you're chronically anxious every time you're out of the house. That's pretty unpleasant. You know, that's really going to affect your quality of life. But, okay, let's look at the dog bite. Yes, that was unpleasant. It was painful. You needed a bit of time in hospital to get some shots and stitches and whatever else was necessary. But after that, you know, within a couple of days, there was no real consequences. It was it was fine. I would rather have that once in a lifetime because how many people are getting bitten, you know, every week or even every year? It's, it's a, such a rare event. Um, I'd rather have that than have the anxiety on a day-to-day basis yeah. any day. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of a a deep principle applicable to everyone, not just patients. Uh, A little bit like, you know, Harry Potter, Voldemort, if I'm allowed to say that name, you know, like fear of a name increases the fear of the thing itself, whatever Dumbledore said. So it's a little bit like confronting what makes you anxious a a bit at a time until you get... Um, a bit more over it. And that's actually really applicable to everyone, I think. A hundred percent. So um, with kids, loads of kids have um, fears. They don't have to even necessarily have an anxiety disorder. Mm. But um, if they scream and say, I don't want to do it and have a tantrum and the parent wants to protect them from the distress, Mm. the child doesn't develop confidence in that situation and learns that if... Um, if they want to feel better, they need to avoid. And that's going to restrict their life. It's going to reduce their confidence and promote more anxiety and low self-esteem. Um, myself, personally, as a mum, whenever my kid says she doesn't want to do something and it's anxiety-driven, <laughs> poor little thing, she's forced to do it, usually <laughs> gradually, <laughs> where I can. But I notice usually the worst part is thinking about doing it. Mm. Once she's actually done it, sometimes within five seconds, the anxiety is totally gone. And then the yeah. confidence and the smiles just skyrocket. Um, yeah. So you don't have to have anxiety disorders to feel frightened of things. Um, we all, you know, we all have fears, sometimes even irrational fears, but they're not actually causing distress or interference in our lives. Mm-hmm. But we might just not want to do it. One personal example, in the local shopping centre where um, I do my uh, shopping, I would always park on level three. And I'd always wondered, how do you get to level two and level one? And is there parking there? And my daughter said, why don't we do that? And I thought, oh, I don't know how to get down there. You know, it's a big car and I'm yeah. not very confident. I took the risk. It was like parking heaven. <laughs> so now I only park on the second, the lower mm. one. Um, so I took a risk. I faced my fear. It wasn't a pathological fear, but I did it anyway. And now it's so easy to get a spot. So it can be very useful to identify when you're having sort of a nervous avoidant response. Mm. Take a risk. Do it anyway.
Yeah, it Unless it's like, dangerous. Yeah, like, <laughs> it sounds a bit like a, a philosophical sort of principle. Like I've, I recently read the book um, Yes Man, which is what the movie um, with Jim Carrey is based on, actually a autobiography. Um, and I guess the idea is just saying yes to things, even if they scare you. Sometimes, you know, we get frightened and maybe that is an evolutionary protective response. Yeah. We should be frightened. Yeah. But sometimes the things you do that scare you, they're the ones that are the most worthwhile. Like I'm sure when everyone came to medical school, that must have been terrifying, a lot of trouble. Maybe you'd rather just you know, um, sit down, watch TV and not study. But in the end, it's, I'm, I'm sure, very, very worth it. So, um, yeah, it strikes me that maybe CBT is the cognitive treatment for patients and maybe self-help books are the cognitive treatment for non-patients, I guess. <laughs> self-help just seems like a um, maybe an elevated version of CBT before the problems around. The whole idea of changing your beliefs and changing your motivations and your thinking. I think there's a huge overlap with um, motivational speakers. Yeah. Um, self-help books, they're certainly available for patients, but mainstream as well. And they, I think, are borrowing very heavily from cognitive um, and behavioural mo- models. Yeah. yeah. But how do you know when your level of fear or anxiety is proportional or not proportional? It's a bit of a grey area, subjective. So what's the um, I think if everybody else is experiencing the same reaction, then chances are it's probably not excessive. But if you're the only one, you know, mm. freaking out about going into a lift and everybody else seems fine and they're yeah. on their phones having conversations like it's a total, uh, you know, it's not even threatening in, in the least, then chances are your thoughts are probably more irrational and your level of distress is disproportionate to the danger of the situation. Mm. So sometimes there is a bit of wisdom in the crowd mentality. Sometimes um, it is important to sort of compare yourself to the norm then. Yeah, that would be one of the thought-challenging methods I would uh, recommend is have a look at everybody else's expression. Um, Mm. So, for example, if someone has obsessive-compulsive disorder with contamination fears and they, they don't like touching publicly touched surfaces like handrails on escalators or things like that, look what everybody else is doing. Look, they're all touching it. And then they're touching their nose and picking their face and licking their fingers and going to eat lunch. If everybody's doing it and there's no, you know, pandemic of disease following mm. this behaviour, then chances are it's not as dangerous as they perceive it, it to be. Yeah. Okay. And what's the biggest personal takeaway you've got from psychology? You mentioned a story about the parking. Has, has that been a, a principle that's, you know, that's um, struck out you? As I've um, continued to uh, practice psychology, um, my, my, my personal preference um, I was trained as a co- more of a cognitive therapist with behavioural principles as well, but I actually do much more behavioural work where I can with patients. I still will do cognitive work, of course, um, but behavioural work in a nutshell in lay terms is kind of all about taking risks. So you could call it facing your fear. Mm-hmm. The person has a belief something bad's going to happen. If I put myself in that situation, something terrible is going to happen. So take a risk. Let's just find out see what happens. So um, whether you uh, have a, a sort of... Um, more of a pathological level of distress where it's causing impairment to your life or whether it's it's getting the heart rate going and you know you're feeling uncomfortable but you do it anyway or you try mm-hmm. to do it um, my take-home message would be take a risk if it's yeah. something that other people are doing but you're a bit unconfident give it a go uh, another expression that's very valuable in the field is fake it till you make it yeah <laughs> yeah yeah just put yourself in it you don't yeah. have to feel calm just do it but with repetition and practice you'll be doing it in no time yeah. And are there qualities that separate 
just in general, not, not about patients in particular, but um, in life, say, very successful, high-achieving people from people who are less so? Is there a particular thought that's different? Is it the fake it till you make it? Um, I remember seeing an interview with someone, um, a very successful multimillionaire, and um, the interviewer said, so, you know, you've been successful so many times in your life. And he goes, no, I've actually failed way more than the average person. Mm. I have taken so many risks. Yeah. Some haven't paid off, but some really have. And yeah. so that, again, would sort of um, reinforce the message I think high-achieving people probably have taken more risks where if you're very cautious and risk-averse, you may not progress as high as you potentially are capable. Yeah, because I guess when you take risks, you find out that you're a lot more efficacious, you have a lot more control over your life than you otherwise might have thought. Yeah, Um, Yeah. even something simple like communicating. If you worry Mm. that if I say something to my boss, they'll think I'm stupid or they'll get angry at me, so I'll say nothing... Mm. If you said it, maybe they wouldn't think you were stupid or maybe they wouldn't get angry. Or even if they did get angry, maybe it would only last for five seconds or a day, but then the situation would be improved, you would have felt heard, um, they may have respected you for saying something, Mm. and good things can often happen. So I just want to preface, I'm not saying take stupid risks, (laughs) not jump out of windows and, and, you know, silly things that are dangerous, but take risks that other people are doing but Mm. you feel unconfident to do, do it anyway. Yeah, um, the idea of no risk, no reward. So yes. risk it for the biscuit or whatever they say. Yeah. <laughs> no pain, no gain. You've yeah. got to have some distress to get the benefit. Exactly. And what's that other one? Pain is weakness leaving the body. All these sorts oh, of nice. things. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's talk about medical students in particular. Any differences in medical students versus the rest of the population, psychologically, mentally? Uh, look, I'm certainly no expert and I haven't done any research in that area. But uh, look, anecdotally, I would imagine medical students, they've done very well at school. Um, this may be because of a natural intelligence or a combination of that as well as, um, you know, perhaps parental um, encouragement mm. or a personality style that is um, diligent. Not always, but um, I'm sure medical students will vary in terms of their natural intelligence mm. and, and how um, conscien- conscientious they are of working. But from my experience, um, sometimes with those who are beyond medical students, registrars, for example, when they're having to do exams and they've failed, it's the first time they've ever failed something in their life. And for many, it can precipitate a depressive episode. It is so mm. devastating to their identity to fail Um, they just can't take it. So um, I think people who are very high achievers who um, have never experienced something bad happening in regards to their intelligence, for example, like failing, um, will take that much harder than someone who's sort of been hovering around average or a a bit above average but nothing super special. Um, So I think there's a level of neuroticism that's probably higher in medical students than there may be in um, the rest of the population. And I think they are, I remember learning that they are more prone to stress-based um, disorders and probably symptoms that go along with that, some of the somatic symptoms associated with stress like headache, muscle tension mm. and so on, sleep issues as well. Right. I guess one counter-argument to that, though, is um, if someone's been hovering around average or below average, they could have, I guess, low self-esteem. Certainly. <laughs> so it could go Heaps both Heaps of people ways, do. Yeah. yeah. Look, there's so many different factors that yeah. can contribute. Yes. Yeah. So I suppose the idea here is to separate your identity from your marks. For example, if you get a high mark, it's not necessarily your identity. It could be. It's a good thing. But if you get a high mark and then lower mark, it doesn't mean your identity is dropped or anything. Is, is that the solution to, um, to not judge yourself by those criteria? I suppose so. I think, you know, if, if the uh, mark is lower than you anticipated, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean you're a stupid person or a dumb person or a bad person or mm-hmm. a worthless person. 
obviously no. Was it a particularly hard exam? You know, had you had family stress, you weren't mm. sleeping, broke up with your partner, um, out partying, drinking too much. Were there <laughs> other factors that yeah. contributed to the low mark? Yeah. Did you just totally misunderstand the question yeah. and just, you know, lose 50% of the mark because you... you mm. You know, you didn't get the question right. That's not a, um, you know, intelligence issue as such. Mm. You know, you may have just been distracted or, you know, a careless mistake, for example. So exploring and, and you know, if someone was to, to seek therapy, not that they necessarily would, but if they did, um, <laughs> yeah. about that, the therapist might be exploring their thoughts around it and then challenging their interpretation of being stupid or worthless yeah. by looking at, well, what's your evidence for that? Um, and what evidence do you have that would suggest that that's actually not the case? So coming up with a more balanced interpretation of the failed exam mark. Yeah. Then again, there is also the, the grey line. Um, since we're quoting a lot of sayings, um, a poor workman doesn't blame his tools. Mm-hmm. So how do people um, maintain their self-esteem and sense of self while not just blaming everything else and delegating all responsibility to something else? And how do you take accountability but not... Um, you know, kill yourself. Oh, look, absolutely. If, for example, someone with social anxiety um, is fearful of going to parties because they worry that people will think they're boring Mm. and then they test it out and it turns out people do think they're boring. (laughs) They're avoiding conversations with them. Um, You know, if you ask somebody directly, did you think that person was boring? Yes, they were very boring. (laughs) Then you do have to take that feedback on board Mm. and, and go, okay, well, I need to address this. I need to learn how to, you know, talk about things that might be of interest to other people and not just talk about myself and and my shovel collection for 20 minutes. (laughs) Actually sounds quite interesting. (laughs) So, um, yeah, if you're getting feedback that actually is highlighting that there is a problem, um, you do need to own that and take steps to address it. Mm. Yeah, so what it comes down to, it sounds like, is understanding that people can change. And CBT sounds like that. Understanding that you can change your thinking, change your behaviour. And same with this. um, Even if you get a bad result, it's the idea that you can improve, you can change, you get a low mark, you can change. Yeah. So CBT, um, just one clarification that's often misunderstood in the general population, is it's all about positive thinking. It's Mm. certainly not about positive thinking. If I have a patient come and tell me that they're really anxious about a situation and we explore their evidence for Mm. this and I'm totally on board that, yes, that situation is very worrying and if I were you, I'd be very worried about that too. In fact, I think you should be worried. it's, it's not inappropriate. Yeah. Um, so cognitive therapy is all about um, changing unrealistic thoughts. But if the thoughts are realistic, so for example, if you are getting bad marks, um, a colleague of mine was wanting to refer a patient who was a um, plastic surgery registrar or a registrar surgeon, um, but he failed his exams four times. Mm. Um, and I'd be wanting to know, well, what's going on there? You know, is he just not smart enough to do it or I think in, in this guy's case there was an arrogance that I shouldn't have to do general surgery I don't want to do plastics um, so he's just not putting in the effort and right. so some sort of personality style of grandiosity and entitlement and narcissism <laughs> was probably contributing to that um, so you're yeah you're really wanting to explore what's the evidence of your thought and maybe you do need to look in the mirror and take steps to address realistic problems it's not about you're amazing and, and yeah, as you said mm. assign blame to others it's about realistically looking at the evidence if you are showing flaws then we need to address those right and talking about the sessions themselves are they normally one-on-one or would you ever do group sessions in private practice i tend to do one-on-one sessions in the public hospital um largely for a 
um, cost-saving measure, <laughs> we would run group treatments. Yeah. Um, and that can be really nice for patients to finally come into contact with people who have similar issues to themselves because often they're the only ones in their family or social network who's having panic attacks or, or whatever the issue is. So it's very uh, normalising to them to hear people's stories that match finally for the first time their own. Um, although what the research tend to, tends to indicate is that... Um, the effectiveness of treatment tends to be higher in individual sessions. Right. Um, it is still effective uh, with group, but just not quite as effective. And I think that's probably because it's not individualised. Unless, of course, the problem itself requires exposure to other people. So, for example, social phobia, yep. you may um, probably get better results if they can tolerate being in the group. That's the hard part. <laughs> right, right. Um, <laughs> because they're actually doing exposure every time they go to a group session. Okay. Sometimes groups um, might have one or two sessions devoted to um, an area that's nothing to do with some of the patients in the group, mm. so they have to sit there for you know two hours a session, getting very little out of it, whereas if they were in individual therapy, that wouldn't happen. Okay. And how many sessions would a person typically have, and how long does a session normally last? So in private practice, um, it's typically about 50 minutes, although I'm always slow, so I'm always going to about an hour, sometimes a bit over got to get my um, boundaries in better shape. <laughs> or, or maybe they enjoy having the extra time. <laughs> I, I think yeah. they love it. They'll, they'll never leave. I had one patient say me, to me yesterday, I could talk about myself 24 hours a day. And I thought, lovely, wow. but we just don't have that time. Um, group treatments tend to be longer, depending on the nature of the problem. Um, for some people, you know, for kids, you can't go too long because they don't have the attention span to tolerate that. But most adults can do an hour and a half with a you know, five-minute break or two hours with, say, a 15-minute break, coffee break. Um, but most individual sessions will go for about um, ab about an hour. And that's not necessarily uh, therapeutically ideal. Um, in the past, when we'd run group treatments um, in the public hospital, we would have a half-day exposure day session where mm. we'd take patients up to the local shopping centre where we could work on... Um, there'd be a train station nearby and they could catch buses and trains if that was their problem. Um, they could have exposure to people or asking questions in shops, social interaction, mm. heights, lifts, whole, all sorts of um, stimuli were available for people to practice in. And that was a four-hour session wow. and people would be almost in tears or crying at the, in the morning <laughs> worrying about what torture we'd be inflicting on them and it's always collaborative so we never force mm. someone to do anything that they really didn't want to do and it's always gradual so baby steps um, but by the end of the day they were so proud of themselves and they were beaming I had one woman who hadn't caught a train for 20 years wow. who um, did on that day and she says I'm framing this train ticket so <laughs> oh, wow. um, again she took a risk and uh, it paid off yeah, no, that's amazing. And it just shows us how everybody has very different fears. Something that we think is quite normal, like catching a train, can be terrifying to someone Absolutely. else. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay. For trauma, um, however, um, sessions tend to go a bit longer because mm -hmm. you need um, more time to talk about what you're going to do, then do it, and then address how it went, and then look at what they're going to be doing next week. And so you're typically looking at about an hour and a half. Um, but that isn't always available, and so you just do your best. Right, and how many sessions would people need? So that will really vary. If it's a new onset um, of a fairly treatable problem that hasn't been around for very long, the person doesn't have a history of trauma or abuse or um, a really difficult upbringing and they're fairly straightforward and pre-morbidly high-functioning, um, then I've sometimes seen benefits in you know just a couple of sessions, two, three sessions, okay. and you think, oh, well, <laughs> from a business perspective, that wasn't great for me, <laughs> but really <laughs> great for them. Yeah. Um, uh, I shouldn't say these things out loud. Um, <laughs> it's, it's all on recording, don't worry. <laughs> 
Um, however, uh, Medicare will give a rebate of up mm. to 10 sessions a year. It used okay. to be 12 and up to 18. They've cut it back for cost-saving reasons right. down to 10. Um, that is not clinically indicated. Uh, that's just a budgetary issue. Sure. Um, so most patients would show some benefit by the end of 10 sessions, but they mm. will still have symptoms left over. Um, I've seen a guy who had reasonable, reasonably severe OCD that disabled him from completing his HSC. Um, he was worried that he'd make a mistake, which would ruin his life. You know, if, if I make a mistake on this exam, I'll get a low mark. That will stop me from getting into university and then I won't be able to be the doctor mm. or whatever he wanted to be. So he would um, spend so much time on question one. Did I? Maybe I made a careless mistake. Better go back and check. Oh, hang on, maybe I didn't check properly. Better go back and <laughs> So by the time he'd yeah. finished question one and yeah. was on to question two and three, the exam was finished and there oh, were 20 questions. Wow, okay. So it was actually extremely disabling for him. Yeah. Now, I've seen him for... I think 27 sessions. I don't know really why. He keeps coming to see me weekly. His parents are very supportive <laughs> and um, they they want weekly sessions, so I see him weekly. But he probably responded um, really well by about 14 sessions okay. and the rest now are starting just to become conversational. Yeah. And what if people were to not go to any psychology um, sort of therapy? What if they were just to take medications? How effective would that be? Um, for some people that can be very effective. Um, interestingly in my work I never see these people because yeah, yeah. They yeah. take the medication and they don't have any yeah. other need. I will often see people who are already on medication. Um, they may show some improvement, but there's still enough suffering or residual symptoms mm -hmm. left over to warrant having um, a crack at an alternative treatment. Yeah. Um, so that's very common, uh, probably more the norm, I would imagine. Okay. Um, although I actually don't know. Um, it also depends on patient preference. So mm. some patients really like taking a tablet because it's easy and there's not much thought involved, certainly no effort. When it comes to cognitive behavioural therapy, there's so much um, effort <laughs> involved. You have to um, acknowledge that you're going to have to experience some temporary distress and not everybody wants to have anxiety and put themselves in uncomfortable situations. Um, for the cognitive part, you have to make efforts in monitoring thoughts and taking steps to challenge thinking and write stuff down. Not everybody wants to do that. Um, on the other hand, not everybody wants to take tablets and some people mm. don't like taking any medication, not even a Panadol, um, and some people get side effects. Um, other people have just beliefs that medications are evil and bad and they're like poison so they just don't want to do it. Um, I'm happy to respect their beliefs, but if I find that you know what I'm doing isn't really working mm. or they're just too anxious to engage in the treatment, I usually will be pushing for a referral to go and see someone to have a chat about it. Yeah, I guess that would be ironic if someone came to you because they believed medications were evil and then you had to use CBT to get them off the <laughs> belief. But, okay, so there is an element of patient preference there. Definitely. And um, is there uh, tend to be a relapse or do people tend to do really well and walk away and not need CBT again? Um, the sad truth is that um, most conditions um, are relapsing. So okay. anxiety disorders tend to be relapsing even with treatment across the lifespan. Um, depression, for some people, they may have one episode and never have another depression, depressive episode again. However, what research shows, if you've had um, recurrent depression, which is essentially at least two episodes mm. of depression, then you are going to be more likely to have episodes of depression in the future, even if they were successfully treated either with medication or even cognitive behavioural therapy. Um, if they've responded to CBT in the past, then there's a very good chance that they'll respond again next time round, which is good. Um, if they've been on medication, responded to that medication, been on it for a year, decided to come off, did well for a while and then got depressed again, there's a good chance that they may respond well to that medication again. Um, but yes, uh, unfortunately these are relapsing conditions. Okay, and moving the topic back to our listeners and um, the medical field, is there anything um, that doctors should know when they deal with psychologists or anything you wish doctors would do that would make your job a lot more effective or better? 
Um, that's a good question. Mm. Sometimes the referrals we get um, are extremely vague, but that's mm. okay because we'll do our own assessment. Um, yeah. What would we want from them? Um, we hope that they read our letters. Although okay. we <laughs> sometimes I'll spend quite a bit of time writing a letter back about what what I've um, mm. seen with the patient and how they're going. Um, you, you don't typically ever get any feedback from a doctor and they're often very difficult to call mm. um, and often in private practice we're so busy to write the letter I'd much rather just say hey I saw your patient this is what I think um, yeah. they're doing this or this is what I predict for them in the future so um, having easier access to a doctor would be great so you could have a quick chat and I think that way communication would be so much mm. more enhanced uh, I'm so busy my letter writing is a bit hopeless um, I just don't get the chance unless the patient cancels to write that letter I mean I could do it on my weekend but I don't want to I've got <laughs> yeah, to set boundaries for my own mental health yeah. Yeah. Um, but if I called the GP and yeah. they took my call that would be amazing and I think that would right. be so much better for the patient and the GP would love it too so uh, they may be willing to do that but I think there is a um, attitude amongst psychologists that mm. GPs are too busy okay. and they don't um, don't take a call I, I know as a patient I would never call my GP mm. um, I would have to go in and make an appointment yeah. So. Okay. But that sounds like a good tip. So um, better friendships professionally through um, better communication. Communication is always yeah. so important. And as psychologists, we are pretty hopeless at communicating um, <laughs> with written correspondence um, as often as we should, largely just because of time. We just don't mm. have the time to do it. Okay. Well, just before we wrap up, what about any pointers or any advice for medical students? Let's just say in terms of mental health or just making it through life. <laughs> okay. Um, as boring as this sounds, exercise is really, really important. Um, it is as effective as an antidepressant for treating um, mild to moderate um, and even people with severe depression can benefit from exercise. So that um, is, um, it sounds like such a, a trite message, but it, it can have really quite profound uh, impacts on stress levels and mood enhancement as well and, and just getting a bit more balance in your life rather than being always caught up with your nose in a book. Mm. So um, listen to podcasts sometimes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Definitely. Balance, I think, is super important. Yep. Um, and, yeah, taking risks as well. So if you're um, very risk-averse and, and, you know, spending way too much time reading because you fear that you're not going to do well enough, um, I don't know, take a risk and see how badly you do if you read, you know, one or two less articles for that assignment. If it's not working for you or, you know, if you only got a distinction and not a high distinction, <laughs> but, you know, you had a better better relaxation levels or you mm. didn't feel so stressed, looking at, is it worth it? I don't know. For some people, it's going to depend on their priorities. They'd rather kill themselves to do super well so mm. they could have a better future. Um, others would rather have better quality of life and achieve not quite that level of perfection, but still well good enough. So looking at your priorities can also be very important. What is important to you? and why and okay. should it be <laughs> so we have it from our own clinical psychologist take risks but not silly risks Just, yes very good you know, <laughs> balance risks all right well thank you so much for giving us your time and your wisdom pleasure lily thank you and we'll see you all in the next episode